0: coming trials is the title of message number four of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, The Church and the World of the Future, a study of the book of Revelation. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's scripture text is Revelation chapter six and seven. Our gracious Father, we have acknowledged this morning that you are the Lord of creation, the Lord of everything. And we bow down before you as the God who was Who is and forevermore will be. We've confessed that your name is majestic and we praise you and magnify your name. Lord, we've come also to listen to the teaching from your word and we pray that your peace would come to us as a result of what we hear this morning. Lord, use your word, we pray, to change our lives. Use your servant Joel and illustration to challenge us to, to be ready to take the next step in our journey toward you. We pray that you will free us from the distractions that we may have carried into this room with us, and that you will enable us to hear completely and clearly from you alone. We ask in your name, amen. You may be seated. As we begin to
1: examine these trials and tribulations, these uh patterns of uh, destroying the uh, worldly systems to make uh, evident the need for the kingdom of God. Uh, some of you have said, uh, Joel, what does this have to do with relationships? And indeed, uh, I apologize for not making this very plain to you. We have turned a corner here. Uh, we are no longer talking about improving relationships by looking at one another. We are talking now about building relationships by facing toward the future together. Now, one of the things that we want you to see from the very beginning as we begin to look at the big picture is that the big picture has everything to do with the little picture. The patterns that you see in the world have everything to do with what happens in a family. The destruction that you see in the world has everything to do with how we treat each other as individuals. To begin this morning's uh, message, we would like to uh, invite you to observe a little sketch, and I would challenge you during this time to see if you can pick up the continual correlation between what is happening in the world and what is happening in a marriage. I'm
2: home. sleep in the emulsifying tank again. I had to let him go. It was the third time. Nothing I could do about it.
1: Oh,
2: The divorce rate is up in our state. One psychologist claims people... No longer see their lives as individuals as relevant to their lives as a couple. Relevant? Relevant? What? What does that mean? These psychologists are trying, they're trying to drive us crazy!
3: Morning. How does work? Today's my first class. You know, I'm taking that self-awareness, self-massage, self-help course. (laughs) Down at the self-center. I can use it, too.
2: Ha! Oh, yes! A federal commission will propose that Congress change immigration laws to make families who bring relatives to the U.S. responsible for supporting them. Thank you! Thank you very much! It's about time! Hello! Get a job! Better yet, stay home! The country's full!
3: (laughs) Your mother called last night. She wants to have the family reunion in Italy this year because your grandmother's too old to make the flight over. She wants us to call your grandmother, but I don't speak Italian. What's the point?
2: Could you believe this? Eighty-nine percent of those polled believe all politicians to be corrupt. We're raising a nation of cynics here. I mean, I mean they're right. Politicians are corrupt, but you still got to talk like you've got faith for crying out
3: crumpets. We got a letter from that church we went to asking if we want to be kept on the mailing list. It's been two years since we were there. I said no. No.
2: Let's see. How many countries invaded other countries today? One, two, three. What a world! What a world! No one has respect for other people's
3: property anymore! I got a new computer program that's going to help with the household accounts. I saw it on Frank's computer at work yesterday. And he called in sick in the afternoon, so I snuck into his office and copied it onto a disk. Now it's mine. By the way, I'm filing for divorce.
2: Oh, well, well, well. After six hours of discussion, U.S. and North Korean negotiators were unable to bridge their differences. Washington
3: suspects North Korea of violating treaty obligations. I know you're seeing another woman. Six hours of discussion. Well, I guess you gave it all you can, boys. A big six hours out of your life! That's plenty of time to put in
2: to stop the world from nuclear bombing by an angry third world countries. Yeah, well I guess you did. Oh you can. The whole world is flying around our ears and no one cares and no one's doing anything to stop it. Nuclear bombings, drive-by nuclear bombings, killings, murder in the street, we're all going to Hades in a
3: handbasket. Come on! Come on! The papers arrive in two months. Do you want to talk about it? Come on! Come on! I'm
2: going to bed. I'll see you tonight.
1: Most of us think that we have our relationships in isolation, just the opposite is true. When God talks about unleashing the judgments of the kingdom into the world, when He talks about these catastrophic events that are going to be happening and as as indeed you'll see have been happening, have been happening in cycles since the beginning of time, we are talking about our relationships as individuals. Now, as we begin to examine these things, I want you to get the structure of how the how the Scripture is written. <clears throat> we will not go, um, you know, uh, seals, trumpets, uh, bowls, uh, as as a something that are totally separated from one another. As a matter of fact, Scripture is written so that the overall pattern is told first, and then the details are filled in later. It's very much like you read in the paper. Uh, there are, uh, you know, in any good story, there's a summary of the story at first, and then if you go on to read the article, you you see the details of the story. Well, the Bible's written like that. For example, in chapter one, it talks about the creation of man and woman, and then in chapter two, it it looks it would look like to a non-believer like that's a separate creation event. No, that's simply filling in the details, the how it is done of chapter one. Same thing as you read the proverbs and the psalms. Uh, you will read Hebrew parallelism, which makes a statement and then will give another statement to explain that statement. It either furthers the statement or it contrasts to the statement or it explains uh, or, or restates it in different terms. Well, that's how these, these uh, uh, tribulations and trials uh, unfold. They are not uh, three consecutive events. They are uh, concurrent details of the unfolding of those things here. Now, before we go into the text uh, with some of the um, modern-day explanation and some of the historic review, I want to do what we did last week. I know it's very difficult for those of you who do your homework to picture the details of what is painted in chapter 6, for example, as an entire picture. And so, therefore, we're going to have some help this morning. This is simply one rendition. You understand that, uh, but we again went back to the archives, and this uh, painting is painted by a an anonymous uh, Flemish artist, and it depicts the sixth chapter of Revelation. And I just want to give you this as kind of a visual starting point for this uh, for the explanation of this chapter. Um, Let's go back to where we were uh last week. You'll notice the uh four uh beings, the zoa—that uh that is the uh the heavenly beings, one, uh, a lion and a colt. Um those look suspiciously alike to me, but I couldn't do any better. Um, a face like a, a person and then a bird. And 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 uh these are uh those beings that we that we examine in chapters four and five. And then you see the picture of the Christ here in between the moon and the sun. Uh, the heavenlies are separated from the earth. And now, uh as uh Saint John, who is here, this is the uh the writer of the book of Revelation, as he observes this scene, he begins to point to the first seal, which is this writer uh coming in uh as a conqueror. Uh the, the scripture talks about him uh, being given a crown, and you can actually see the hand from heaven come down, giving him the crown on his head. Uh, we'll talk about him just a little bit more later on. This is the second uh, horse. By the way, anytime you see the, the horses in Scripture, horses were the instrument of warfare. So this is highly symbolic of the spiritual warfare that's, that's going to be going on. This is the, uh, the red horse, or the horse uh, for warfare. I want to remind you of the, of the particular text does not say that these people wage warfare. It says they come down and take peace and people begin to slay one another. So therefore, the warfare is between us. It's not between us and the heavenlies. Then uh, the third seal is this uh, uh, person riding in on this black horse. You can hardly see that black horse. But... Uh, um, He is writing in with a a pair of scales. Now, here's what I want you to know before we get to that that, uh, third seal. Scales do not mean famine. Scales mean scarcity. And that's what we're going to talk about. And then the fourth writer is death, uh, uh, shown here as a carcass, a conquering carcass with uh, fiery darts and so on and so forth, along with Hades. See how Hades is pictured as a swallowing mouth of a beast. Uh, Hades having demons coming out of Hades. Now, I, there's even a picture I like better than this. Uh, show me the, the the other slide. I like this one even better. This is that, that same uh, 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 specter of death with the fire of judgment coming out of the mouth of Hades. And the reason I like it is because you can see the population of Hades, including church of- officials. Uh, kind of keeps me on my toes. Uh, <laughs> The reason I like this is because uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Hades was a, was a was pictured as Sheol, and Sheol was sometimes pictured as kind of a neutral territory for the for the the spirits of the dead. You know, kind of some place that you resided until you went someplace else. In the New Testament, though, Hades is very much more pictured as the place of punishment, um, and so that's that's why I like this picture better. Okay, take it back then to the first slide. Um, now, the uh, fifth seal is the martyrs under the altar. Uh, they are there because they have shed their blood for Christ or they've been killed for Christ. In the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice was poured under the altar, and so that's a very fit place for them. And then the sixth seal, see if you can focus just a little bit more on the castle here. Remember, this was, in, uh, this was painted in the 1400s, early 1400s. And uh, this is the image of an earthquake here. You see the crack in the drawbridge. You see the turrets coming off. Um, I want you also to notice that there are people hiding in caves down here. He's looking like he's requesting something. We'll tell you what that is in a minute. I love this picture right here. You know, He's hiding from the judgment of God like God's not going to be able to see him there. It's the old ostrich mentality. So, uh, okay, uh, let me uh, go down through the scripture so that you can have some of the particulars that will help you understand the spirit of the judgments that are to come. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out to conquer, uh, went out conquering and to conquer. Now, there are two views as to who the rider of this horse is. We're not told. Uh, Both of them can be um, um, backed up scripturally. Some people say that this rider is really Jesus, uh, that this is is the conquering Christ, as is pictured in the 19th chapter of Revelation, where he comes in on a white horse. White horse uh, symbolizing victory, of course. Um, I rather disagree with that. I think that this uh, is a... um, malevolent presence uh, and I'll tell you why first of all the only descriptions that match in in 19 and, and uh, six between 19 and 6 are the horse uh, secondly um, the crown that is given him is not diademata the crown of royalty the crown is Stefanoi which is the crown of conquering or or someone who has taken it over um, thirdly um, all of the rest of these writers, of the four horsemen of the of the apocalypse are malevolent figures. It would be incongruous to have uh, this person as Christ who is employing the other three for their evil and malicious purposes. It just doesn't make uh, 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 for biblical consistency. So therefore, I believe that this is not someone who is a premonition of Revelation 19. It is rather someone who is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 says, In those days a prince will come writing um, and he will uh, conquer. And And <clears throat> basically this prince is given the attributes of the Antichrist. Now here's what you need to understand when you hear the word Antichrist. In English, anti means against. In Greek, anti doesn't necessarily mean against. In Greek, anti means in place of or instead of, as a replacement for. Therefore, the Antichrist need not be one who comes riding in who um, is against Jesus Christ. It may be one who subtly takes the place of Christ in your life. It may be someone who says, you know, what Christ was talking about is what I am. And I will interpret for you what Christ said. You don't need to do it. Now, from the very beginning, we have had both varieties. We have had people who have said, who have had power in this world, who have said, I am God. I am the replacement for God. And they've said it very openly. Uh, In the early days of the Hebrews, the Pharaoh was proclaimed God. In the days of Jesus, Caesar was proclaimed God. But since that time, there have been more subtle uh, forms of the Antichrist. Uh, People who come and, and... Exert influence in your life, and you put them in the place of God. One person that you will remember—some of you who are, uh, you know, 20 years old or so— one person that you will remember uh, some time ago took a, a group of 300 believers to Guyana, Africa. His name was Jim Jones, and he proclaimed to believe in in Christ. He proclaimed to be a Christian, yet he persuaded every one of those to drink cyanide and commit suicide. What had they done? They had put him in the place of Christ. He was operated under the spirit of the Antichrist, even though he claimed to believe in Christ. Philosophies these days will say, essentially, well, we haven't got anything against religion, but here's the real stuff. Here's why you ought to follow us. Um, There are New Age religions that say, yeah, we believe in Christ, we believe in Muhammad, we believe in everybody. Uh, religion's a good thing. But yet, here's the replacement we are for you in the psychological field. The reason we're having so much problem, so many problems with abuse, with addiction, with codependency, is because people have put others in the role of Christ. They have put substances and people in a role that only God intended for only God. And so, therefore, this spirit of the Antichrist is very much alive in the world and growing in the world. If you look at the depiction of the king of Babylon, who had um, who was used the, as an example to tell us how Satan fell, you will see uh, in in Isaiah chapter 14 someone standing there who kept saying, "I will rise, I will rise," and it was his will that was exalted, not God's will. And so therefore, that spirit is alive and well. There is much persuasion going on this day. Many people, to fulfill Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24, to say in those days, many will come to say, He is the Savior. He is the Christ. Every person that comes on TV, as a matter of fact, is somebody who has the solution to your problems. But only God has the solution to your problems. Take a look at the next one now. In the next one, it says this, And when He broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, come. And another, a red horse went out. To him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Now, most of you who read about this and you read about warfare, automatically think that this will be in this this uh, this crisis or this cataclysmic event will be built up in the last days with international wars. And as a fact, you look at the world and you say, you know, there are no superpowers except the United States anymore, and, and I guess we don't have to worry about those international wars. This is not a big deal. The world's becoming safer and safer as far as the, the world wars go. Well, take a good look at that text, and if you know Greek, you will know that the word used for slay in that text is not the word that is used for battle in a war, in a national war. The, the word used for slay is the word of murder. Now, let me ask you to change your perspective here. Let me ask you to think of war not on foreign soil, but war on domestic avenues. Let me call your attention to the fact that in the past 30 years, the violent crime in this country has increased 560%. Let me, again, call your attention to what you already know. That these days, the highest rate in that rise of crime, by far, is the youngest part of our younger generation. I know people who operate and and, and deal with gangs, and they say, Hunter, the people who are 16 to 20 years old cannot hold a candle to the viciousness of the 11 and 12 year old kids that we're seeing today that are blowing other kids away because they like their shoes they don't have the first instance of conscience they can just come and blow you away and they don't care does it really have to be a war on foreign soil before this prophecy is being fulfilled before your very eyes as a matter of fact I would tell you you are in deeper trouble Because you don't have to travel someplace to get killed. You can go outside your front door to get killed. Let's go to the third one. By the way, somebody told me, (laughs) as they went out this morning, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be be depressed out of my mind. And that's exactly the point. The third seal is that of scarcity. And I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard it were, as, a, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, "A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." This is not total famine. This is the equation of what it takes to live for a day. Somebody who eats what has been um, uh, bought with a day's wages, which is a denarius, that's a day's wages has enough food for one person, not for his family. And therefore, what we're dealing with today is this mentality of scarcity. We are dealing with this ghost that says, listen to this, there's enough for you, but there's not enough for everybody. And so we begin to operate like that. You know, 150 years ago, a man named Thomas Malthus wrote an economic treatise. In that economic treatise, he said, that the population of the world is growing much faster than the ability of the world to feed those people. Now, with that came a great scare to the educated people in the world. Later, economists saw that the theory was false. He did not see the advances in agricultural production, He did not see refrigeration. He did not see all of the things that gave the world the ability to feed itself no matter where the population went. I would say to you, though, that that specter, that ghost, that fear is still hanging around with us today. Even though we are living in a world with a smaller, by far, a smaller percentage of people, directly involved in agriculture feeding the entire world very well and the and the reason that people still starve to death is not because we don't have the food not because we can't produce it it's because we're afraid there won't be enough for us it's selfishness we've got the food we could share we could feed everybody in the world today we have these conferences in cairo on 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 uh the world population and and hype each other up about how scared we are well someday there could be twice as many people in the world as there are now the same week that that conference was being held there was an article in Time Magazine that said we could easily feed twice as many people as there are in the world right now we could easily do it what's the problem the problem is we're still scared there's not enough there may not be enough for me and so therefore I can't let other people be born because they might get my food or my goods. My standard of living might not be as high. I want to tell you that same spirit invades our relationships emotionally. I can't give my love to you. There's not a love for me. Therefore, I will go into a relationship and get as much gratification as I can, not giving you quite as much as I get because that wouldn't be a good deal. See? I want to come and get as much as I can. Of course, the formula of God is exactly the opposite. The formula of God is the more you give, the more you have. But we have this focus on scarcity. And the focus today has become so strong, listen to this, that people are starving themselves. People have taken this in. Have you ever in your life seen a culture so fixed on food as our culture? So fixed on the whole industry of dieting? Diet is a multi billion dollar industry in this country. People have this image now that they ought to eat scarcely. And so therefore, they start to do what with their food? They weigh it. Sometimes they actually put it on scales. Other times they just say, how many fat grams have I eaten today? You know, have I gone over my limit? We can look at a 14-year-old athlete girl, little, skinny, proper thing, and one woman says, you know, honey, I think you're gaining weight, and she starves herself to death. I'm telling you, that specter of scarcity has taken us over. We're scared we won't have enough, but yet we starve ourselves on the other end. Let me go to the next one. The next one is death. And Hades that follows it. And I want you to read how this happens. An authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. By, by the way, who's given the authority? God's given the authority, isn't he? Why? Because he is. he is readying us to be purified, to rely totally on him. And the way he calls people to himself many times who are too lunk-headed to go there as they ought to is by need and by emergency. And so he's doing this, he's allowing for this to call people to himself. It says, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now you look at that and you say, you know, especially with these last two, you say, Hunter, come on now. Wild beasts of the earth? Yeah. I live in, I live in Altamont Springs. What's gonna happen? Some zoo gonna break open and I'm gonna get trampled by a water buffalo? Come on! Wild beasts? Let me ask you a question. When you say the word beasts, how big are your beasts? Somebody sent me this week a uh, an article from the latest Time magazine and it's about little tiny germs. It's about the tiny pathogens that are causing the deadliest scourges in the world, the diseases of the world. Now, most of us feel like you know what medical science is advancing so fast that someday we're just going to overcome disease i mean we really have this faint hope in our minds that could possibly be true if disease were just to stay where it is the problem is disease itself advances listen to this it's tempting to think of these tiny pathogens that produce such diseases as malaria, dysentery, TB, cholera, staph, and strep as malevolent, these are their words, this is a quote, tiny little beasts out to destroy higher forms of life. And then they go into the political correct, oh, their poor little things are just doing what come naturally, growing and changing and so on and so on. Don't even call them, yeah, let's, let's, put this in such clinical terms that uh, they're not even our enemy. Now, it says, by now, nearly every disease organism known to medicine has become resistant to at least one antibiotic and several are immune to more than one. One of the most alarming things about the cholera epidemic that has killed as many as 50,000 people in Rwandan refugee camps is that it involves a strain of bacteria that can't be treated with standard antibiotics. Relief agencies had to scramble for the right medicines, which gave the disease a head start in its lethal rampage. Even such seemingly prosaic but once deadly infections as staph and strep have become much harder to treat as they've acquired resistance to many standard antibiotics. One strain of hospital dwelling staph can now be treated with only a single antibiotic, and public health officials have no doubt that the germ will soon become impervious to that one too. How big are your beasts? Do you think that there can be a plague, a pestilence that comes, not in the form of elephants and lions, but in the form of germs that can take us out? Read on with me. The fifth seal is about the martyrs. It says that there are these people who have spilled their blood for the cause of Christ, who are under the altar in heaven. Now, the scene has just switched from the earth to heaven. But the frustration is about earth. And their frustration is, why the injustice? Especially, why the injustice against Christians? How long are you going to wait on this, God? Now, many of you can draw the analogy to the legal system that we have. Many of you can say, you know what? I can understand their frustration because we deal with the injustice that is evident in the legal system that we have. It's crazy and it's getting worse. The more we develop the legal system, the more we make all these little laws and all these little technicalities. The more injustice grows. Beck was coming back from school the other day. She said, "Did you you hear Rush go off today?" She was listening to Rush Limbaugh, and believe me, we take, you know, we listen to more politically than Rush Limbaugh. That's a very narrow um, um, perspective. But, but we enjoy him. You know, he just kind of goes off, and he's a lot of fun. He's an entertainer. And he was absolutely going off because of what he had heard that day. There was a person going through a trial in California who stood up in the middle of the trial and said, This is ridiculous. We're wasting time. We're wasting money. This is hard on people. I confess, I did it. Let's stop this madness. I did this thing. The judge said, You can't do that. By California law, you can't confess by yourself. You've got to go to your attorney and ask him or her if it's wise to confess, and the word has to come from your attorney. And because he did that, they could now declare this thing a mistrial, and he could get off scot-free. Now, it's no secret why people in heaven are frustrated, is it? It is especially no secret when you when you look at what is happening specifically against the followers of God. Growing there's a nervousness in this country about conservative Christianity. You understand that, don't you? There is also the absolute nonsense in this country that says, you know what, everybody stands around and say, Oh, we don't have any morals anymore. And at the same time they not only will not allow the Ten Commandments to be posted anywhere, but they actively, in many public schools, actively retrain those kids to not make any moral judgments whatsoever, especially if it involves other people. Now, you can't have it both ways. You can't train kids not to make moral judgments and at the same time say, where'd the morality go? You see how silly this is? There's a nervousness, especially, about conservative Christianity. As I said before, Norm Stomper, who is the police chief in Seattle, there were two demonstrations in Seattle. There was one for the gay and lesbian cause. And believe me, I've got no problem with those folks having a demonstration. They're citizens of the United States. They can do anything they want. It's fine. But here he goes. He's a chief police. He's riding in this demonstration... In his uniform, a week later, they have a march for Jesus. He absolutely, specifically forbids any police officer, being the chief of police he can do that, forbids any police ch- police officer to participate in that march in their uniform. Why? Well, because that's interference between church and state. But you can march for this other cause that is very politically motivated in uniform. Do you understand the injustice? Well, in heaven they're saying, how long, God, are you going to put up with this? And, this? and God says, look, there are still, and here's what I want you to hear, and this is why it's going on, there are, there are those of us who will never be strong Christians until we see how ridiculous it is in this country, and until we are forced to take a stand. And that's why God is allowing this thing to go down the toilet. He knows us. And he knows that unless it is evident that we are needed to get strong in our faith, we'll just coast. And so he's saying, a little while longer. Got a few more. And by the way, we may have a few more martyrs. But that's the way it's going to go. I've got the time. Don't worry about it. Now look at the last one. This is the one that really wipes me out. This is a view, the sixth seal. Is a view of the end times in cataclysmic terms. Now, there's no real symbolism here because you you, you know, catacly- catechisms or cataclysms um, are, are natural events and they just stand for what they are. You know, just natural events. You know, and these will escalate. You know, there are more and more uh, earthquakes and they will, they will escalate until there's a, there's a huge final cataclysmic event and there will be the judgment of God. Now here's what I want you to see. That judgment will happen on all groups of people. Um, I want you to see that uh, in verse 15 it says, kings, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, free man. How many categories? Seven. Seven is the perfect number, the inclusive number. So, So therefore, they're talking about people from every class. But I want you to see what's happened to the mentality of people in this time. They have become so mixed up that they are running to the very thing that destroys them for protection. Look at what they say. During the earthquake, they say, and they said to the mountains, this is verse 16, said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us! From the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What are they doing? They're running from the only thing that could save them to the only thing that is destroying them. They are so messed up in their mind. You say, how could anybody be that stupid? Well, you tell me. We have people whose lives are totally messed up, and so they decide, I think I'll take drugs. Like, that's going to fix it. They're like those little people with a little hiney sticking out. You know? <laughs> he j- It's just a target. It's a good target. Oh, my life's really messed up. I think I need some drugs. Running to the very thing that will destroy them. I know guys, you guys think, you know what? My marriage is kind of getting dull. I think I'll look at some dirty magazine. How stupid is that? You're running to the very thing that will destroy your marriage. Very thing that will destroy your life. We live in a state. Listen to this. This really wipes me out. We live in a state whose escalating crime problem causes us to need to build more prisons. We don't want to pay for them. So we've got this solution. Let's invite the casinos in. <laughs> That'll fix the crime problem, won't it? Like we didn't learn anything from the lottery. Look how the lottery fixed education. Now we got a crime problem, so let's have the casinos come in for us. How stupid can you get, even if you're not a Christian and you have no moral problem with, with, with gambling? You can't be that dumb. But we are. And the Bible says in the end times, people are going to run to the very things that destroy them and away from the only thing that can help them. That brings us to chapter seven. And chapter seven is just this. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, He will give you rest. God in His mercy. I want you to know that every time there's a judgment, there's a mercy that follows. God is so loving. And so gracious and so patient that ever in the midst of the worst, God's saying, but come to me. I'll protect you. I'll seal you. I will take you through this thing as bad as it gets out there. That's how much strength and goodness and perseverance I'm going to give you. You know, in the, in the first couple of verses in the seventh chapter, It talks about God forestalling. The the winds are about to blow the whole thing apart. And God sends four angels to hold back the winds. As a matter of fact, we got a slide of that. This is, uh, Albert Dürer, uh, did this in the early 1500s. And we couldn't get, uh, all of the four winds guys on the, blowing the four winds, uh, on the, uh, on the slide. Uh, nor could we get the angel carrying the cross that has authority over the whole situation. But what we could get were the four angels here holding back the winds. I want you to see their hands are up saying, no, don't. See, there's a the little finger going, uh-uh, don't, don't, do that, don't do that, see. Hands are up holding back the destruction of the earth while the other angel is anointing the elect, the, the believers, uh, on their foreheads, sealing them for protection. By the way, incidentally, uh, the, uh, the painter, Albert Durier, that's, he always signed his, his, uh, Paintings like this, see the A and the D. um, um, Did a self-portrait, and he is one of these people over here who's getting anointed uh, for the ceiling. Now, uh, give me the lights back here, and let me talk just for a minute. This wonderful pause in heaven, this this wonderful um, offer of God, says, you know, there are 144,000 believing Jews. There are people... Like Abraham, who who believed God and God reckoned to him as righteousness. So there will be that that part of... This is not ethnic Judaism. This is believers. Um, there will be that part of it. And then there's going to be people from every tribe and every nation throughout the world who come to the Lamb. And it's those people, it's you people, that I will protect. Let me say this before we go into worship and, and into this wonderful... Um, uh, communion that uh, that seals us forever. If there's anybody in here today who is operating alone without the protection of God, don't go out of here like that. Do not go out of here like that. The world is not going to be fixed by any human motivation, by any battle, by any anything we can do. It is set to get crazier and crazier in parts, but it's also set, listen to this church, to get better and better in parts. We're the better part. We're the holier part. We're the ones who will continue to be a light and an offer of peace in the midst of the storm. We're the ones that God will anoint and keep, no matter how rough it gets, that walk around with hope in our hearts. We're the ones that will have the nerve to whistle no matter how bad it gets, and sing songs of glory, no matter how down everybody else is. If there's anybody in here today who's not saved, who has not claimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to do it. I'm just telling you that flat out. You can harden your heart if you want to. But don't say it wasn't offered. You need to come under the protection of the Lamb. That's what it talks about in chapter 7. You need to avail yourself of His blood not only so that you can be saved unto heaven forever, although that's our goal, that's where we look, but so that you can walk through the storms of the rest of your life knowing, as it says in Isaiah, that you can walk through the waters and you won't drown and you can walk through the fire and you won't be burned. That's what God wants for you. wants to seal you for the coming trials and tribulations. Pray with me. God, if there are people who want to give their life to you today. Let them pray this prayer with me. God, I know I'm a sinner and I know I deserve hell. I know I've turned away from you. And God, I know I can't fix this world. I can't even fix my own life by myself. And I know I can't pay for my own sins. But I also know this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. And I know that that's a gift. I've heard that in the Bible and I I know it. So God, today I accept that gift of salvation. And I rest entirely on his merits. And for the rest of us in that family, now welcoming those new members, thank you for being a part of our family. For the rest of us, God, we would pray this. That as we walk forward, give us the assurance of Christ so that others might see hope. The darker the world gets, the easier it is to shine. So help us, Lord God. Help us not be afraid not because of anything we have in ourselves, but because you're the one in the control room and you protect your own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.